0: So the bootleggers and the Rum Runners already knew the game. They were ready. And Detroit is also positioned just a really narrow river away from Canada that could still produce alcohol. So the uh, people in Detroit, the Rum Runners, would go across the river and there's a couple little islands they could hide from, federal agents too. But they would literally bring booze back by the boatload and Detroit was a hub. For illegal booze disseminating through the country. And and that was new to me. I, I found it interesting. Welcome to the Friends and Fiction Writer's Block Podcast. Four New York Times best-selling authors, one rock star librarian, and endless stories. Join Mary Kay Andrews, Kristen Harmel, Christy Woodson Harvey, and Patty Callahan Henry along with Ron Block. As novelists, we are four longtime friends with 70 books between us.
1: And I am Ron Block. Please join us for fascinating author interviews and insider talk about publishing and writing. If you love books and are curious about the writing world, you are in the right place. Welcome to a new episode of the Friends in Fiction Writer's Block podcast. In this episode, we are taking a trip back to one of the most talked-about periods in American history, the Roaring Twenties. Our guest this week is Tori Whitaker, author of the recently released A Matter of Happiness. It's a dual-timeline historical fiction title that is getting lots of attention and features two of our favorite things, bourbon and classic cars. Our own Patty Callahan Henry blurbed this gorgeous book, saying in part, A thrill of a ride and a beautiful read. Violet and Melanie are connected across generations by blood, bourbon, cars, and a great need for independence. I love that. Tori Whitaker unfolds the narrative with a deep sense of history, imbuing every sensational page, weaving the women's stories until the inspiring conclusion. I am Ron Block.
2: And I am Christy Woodson Harvey. And let me tell you a little bit about our incredible guest Tori Whitaker is the best-selling author of Millicent Glenn's Last Wish and now A Matter of Happiness. She belongs to the Bourbon Women Association, which is something that I am going to need to check out, and the Historical Novel Society. Her work has appeared in the Historical Novels Review and Bookmarks Magazine. Tori graduated from Indiana University is an alum of the Yale Writers Workshop and is recently retired from a national law firm where she served as chief marketing officer. She spent a decade in Detroit because of her husband's career in the automotive industry. The two now reside near their children outside Atlanta and have been married for 45 years. Welcome, wow. Tori. We're so thrilled to have you. Thank you.
0: Uh-huh. I'm so excited to be here.
1: Yeah, I've had such a great time getting to know you on social media, so we're going to talk about where people can locate you later. But
0: Have fun. Thank you. For
1: now, I just want to say it's just so great to meet you, and we can't wait to talk about this book and even your own story getting there. Tell uh-huh. us about the book all about what it's about. And then we want to know a friends and fiction staple. What is the book really about?
0: Oh, yes. Okay. Well, it is a dual timeline story that follows Violet in the 1920s prohibition era of Detroit and her great, great, great niece, Melanie, who is a rising star in the bourbon industry of Kentucky. And so I've juxtaposed sort of prohibition when you couldn't sell alcohol to the modern era where bourbon is booming and the craft cocktail industry and everything. And Melanie inherits a car from Violet from the early 1920s and in it is hidden all of Violet's secrets contained in a journal that she left for her. Uh, Violet died at 103 years old. And so Melanie was already a little girl and, and, and they had a very beloved relationship together. And so um, Melanie's very shocked to learn what a wild flapper life her aunt had back in the day <laughs> and some of the secrets and lessons that she imparts to, to Melanie too. Well, so what it's really about is it's about two intensely independent women who have dreams and have struggles and who are trying to find who they are. And sometimes they think they know where they want to go and then they step back and they reassess. And it's all about them trying to find their own happiness, even though they, they stumble along the way. And um, sometimes they're, they're thrown things that are big challenges, and other times they stumble of their own fault, let's say. Mm-hmm. But ultimately, it is about, uh, one of my favorite quotes from the book is, though candy bars may rain from the sky, <laughs> life will not always be sweet. I see. <laughs> I see. You so like that good. one too. Um, there's a scene in it that was one of my favorite scenes, where in 1920s Detroit, in comes a barnstormer, one of these airplanes that has the open cockpit with a flyboy in it, and and he comes swooping down in uh, close to the ground, and then the next thing you know candy bars, baby Ruth candy bars, of course, tied to rice paper parachutes are spilling out of the plane by the hundreds. and everybody goes scrambling for them. And this was something that was done during the era in about 40 states. It happened here in Atlanta. It uh, started in Pittsburgh. and and to me that's just something about the marketing of the culture, but it it became a theme uh, a thematic for me too, not just a fun scene. But it's the impetus of a violent writing for Melanie um, that though candy bars may rain from the sky, life will not always be sweet. And and they both have in these parallel stories, they both have um, some difficulties they have to navigate. Mm.
2: I love they that. They certainly
1: do. <laughs>
2: yeah. And I think it's so interesting, too, you know, when writing historical fiction, these kind of universal truths that we discover that, you know, in some ways things are different, but in some ways they're really not different at all. And those things that kind of make us human are always there and our struggles and um, our loves and you know, all of those things. And so I love those multi-generational stories like this for that reason. And so I have to say, Tori, so I um, wrote my first historical novel that uh, came out in March. It's called The Wedding Veil vale, and it's um, about Biltmore State and the Vanderbilts. And it's a very, very different thing, writing a historical novel and doing the research for that. Um, And so that was one of the things that really struck me about this book is that the research must have been really daunting because, um, you know, as someone who is not doing this for the first time, you well know if you get it wrong, someone is going to tell you, even if it's like the tiniest minute detail, you know, so I have like lived in fear, you know, of getting emails from readers, like, Well, there wasn't a coat hanger in 1876 or, you know, whatever it is. Um, So anyway, um, that, that really struck me. But so can you tell us a little bit about, you know, learning about the history of bourbon and the Detroit automobile industry, and even the fashion and pop culture details of, you know, this era that you're writing about fun
0: and Christy, you're so right. The historical research um, and, and, you know, from doing the wedding veil that the dual timeline even adds another layer of complexity, but, uh, with the research here, I was doing most of it during COVID. And so it was great for me that I had lived outside of Detroit. I actually worked in Detroit right down the street from the general motors world headquarters. And, um, so I had a feel for the city and some heart for the city, but what I didn't know was Detroit's role in prohibition and It basically had that state had taken prohibition or gone to prohibition a couple years early, and so the bootleggers and the rum runners already knew the game. They were ready, and Detroit is also positioned just a really narrow river away from Canada that could still produce alcohol. So, so the uh, people in Detroit, the rum runners, would go across the river, and there's a couple little islands they could hide from, federal agents too, but they would literally bring booze back by the boatload. And Detroit was a hub for illegal booze disseminating through the country. And, and that was new to me. I've, I found it interesting. At the same time, you've got the city being the motor car capital, of the world. It was actually the fastest growing city during in the country during this time. Wow. Um, Interesting. Partly because of the motor car boom with people from farms and women coming to work in factories and, um, in the great migration and a lot of immigrants coming and It, it was a a population explosion and you, you couple that with all of this underground criminal, uh, network with, the bootlegging and everything uh, it made for an interesting backdrop nobody in my book um, is like a bootlegger or a rum runner or anything but but it is an interesting backdrop and of course there were all kinds of speakeasies i mean just everywhere and the federal agents really were understaffed and 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 some of them on the take and 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 so it just wasn't controlled effectively Um, and that was interesting for me to study. Um, the car itself was interesting and, and, um, Bob, I'm dying to know if you know that, um, the Jordan automobiles were produced in Cleveland. Near you. I
1: I learned that from your book.
0: Yeah. And, um, they had a big, beautiful showroom in Detroit as all the automakers did, but I came across, well, first of all, I had this, I guess, little inspiration of since my husband has been in the auto industry all these years and in his semi-retirement, he he um, does interiors of old classic cars. He works on 1930 Fords and stuff like that for other people. And, and um, I long had this idea of what if a car was stored somewhere for a real long time, some old, old car. And it was hiding something for someone to find. And, and um, that was the germ of the idea for this book. But I had to find the car. And I, I thought I would go 1920s. Um, and I easily discovered this Jordan MX Playboy that was marketed heavily to women of, of um, that era. Young women. Young, independence-seeking women. As, as the ad campaign itself said women who want the wild and the tame. I mean, I really couldn't believe the kinds of things this ad said.
1: So um, <laughs>
0: that was enough to grab me. But then when I found out about the whole um, F. Scott Fitzgerald connection and everything where the car having been so wildly popular with flappers that he named Jordan Baker after this car and the Great Gatsby. He named the Jordan after the car. was like, okay, I found the car. No yeah. more work needs to be done. And I found that the country's foremost expert and went and visited him in West Virginia and everything. So the research here, that was after COVID opened up. I, I had to pre- pretty much depend on talking with him on the phone and his book and everything. But the research was just um, and I haven't even tapped into the the bourbon industry yet, but that oh, was no. another huge big thing. Yeah. Of course, that was fun research, and uh, <laughs> as it
2: all is, but that had extra fun. I'm sure. So, tell us about the the bourbon group that you're a part of. I'm sorry, I've like forgotten the, the, the
0: Hall yeah. of
1: Fame.
2: Yeah, yeah. It's, it's, co- it's called the
0: Bourbon Women's Association, and it's it it's been around for ten years. I went to their annual conference back in. Um, June or, or August, I guess it was August and it was in Louisville, Kentucky, and they had 400 women there from 28 States. And what? what I, what I really had discovered earlier on, but it was, became so much more apparent to me when I was there because I've been a member for a couple of years, but just doing virtual things, mostly or local programs, but it's really about the women in the bourbon women. Um, it's about bourbon. And everybody gets together and they do tastings and they do excursions to distilleries. And they have they have dinners with um, different kind of cocktails that are made for us and stuff. But it's really about the women bonding. And I was I was blown away. Yeah, I highly recommend you look into it.
2: That's very cool. I love that.
1: Will they let me come in?
0: You know, yes, absolutely.
1: Okay, good. (laughs) They do
0: have some men's also. Mm
1: -hmm. So what is your favorite bourbon? Booker's. Ah.
0: Booker's is a Jim Beam product. It's their top line. Uh, My husband fell in love with Booker's about 10 years ago. And, of course, we've done the bourbon trail and everything. But um, it took me... A long time to really get used to it. It's a, I mean, it's like 125 proof. De- depending on what bottle you get, um, it, it comes out with different batches every year. But it's a high proof bourbon. But it's just so flavorful with the spices and the caramel, and um, it's a, it's, um, it's our favorite.
1: Okay, I wrote it down.
2: <laughs> no, Ron, we're gonna have to get some, get some bourbon after this, story. No, well, actually, I think we should
1: this. have a Friends and Fiction event on the Bourbon Trail.
2: I think so too. Ooh. And Tori can come like, le- like who- talk about the the parts of the book that were influenced. I love yeah.
1: that. <laughs> uh, in, that's in, we wrote that in pen. Yeah. yeah. Okay. So I want to ask a little bit more about the two timelines, the, the dual timelines. Um, they both feature women who kind of consider themselves, if you're allow me to say it. Modern women, because that was a lot of Violet called herself a modern woman, and she wanted to be a modern woman. But in some ways, Melanie was too. Can you talk about uh, merging their two timelines and their two stories, and how do you see them as similar and also different?
0: Okay. Well, with Violet's case, when the story opens, she's 18 years old, and she's working as a clerical worker in a Kentucky distillery. But and eventually Prohibition hits and it shuts down most of the distilleries. There were only six that were allowed to sell medicinal alcohol. Otherwise, the rest of the 200 in Kentucky shut down. And um, so she loses her job, but but she wants to work and she wants to get out on her own outside of the the wings of her, her um, mother and, and her father who was now deceased. But um, she is... She doesn't want anyone really telling her what to do, and in that regard, it's sort of the same with Melanie almost a hundred years later. Melanie is a career woman; she is ambitious she doesn't want her mother telling her what to do, and sometimes mm-hmm. even even though melanie's adulting she's twenty eight years old, and um, she's up for a promotion still her mother sometimes puts some pressure on her to do something else, you know and so they have that in common. And then with their love lives, they have a little in common there too. Um, Violet, being the, the new woman of the era, does not want to get married, at least not for a long time, if ever. Um, she, she wants to be independent again. And, and Melanie, while she was engaged, uh, and this isn't too much of a spoiler really, it her, it, readers know this. Well, they know in the first chapter that her engagement is broken, but but really um, her ex fiance um, they they had a bit of a falling out about melanie's career and so she's putting her career first too here, and um, that's another way that they're that they have in common, but the things that they have different are um, violet she she has, I think, a, a, a warmer relationship with her mother than Melanie does. And what we hope over the course of the modern thread of this book is that Melanie will come to some resolution with her mother too. I think readers hope to see that. Violet also has um, something something bad happened in her life that, that doesn't occur to uh, Melanie in her timeline, but that would be a spoiler.
1: That would be. And um, this book has amazing spoilers, so oh, I good. won't give away anything, but I just, <laughs> um, and I, I just want to commend you too. the, the prologue of the book was so, it, much like um, Christy did in The Wedding Veil, too, it, it just gave the reader such a sense of place and time because you see. set it in the Prohibition era. And then Christy sets a lot of hers in okay, it. Biltmore. I have a
2: question about the, about the prologue. Do you write your prologues? I mean, this maybe sounds like a stupid question, but do you write your prologues first or do you write them last? That's Ooh. a
0: great question. I wrote a prologue and I wrote it first. Okay. And it was a prologue for probably a year and a half of the two years I worked on the book. But, um, ultimately it got moved, that prologue got moved to later in the book Okay. and another scene that I'd written, you know, in, into the book, deep into the book. Um, I, I had this, this inspiration to just try it. Let's move it into prologue and see what happens. And so, Oh my gosh, my editors loved it. And, so um, I did good. too. And I yeah. think you're right, Ron. It That scene gives me an opportunity to have all kinds of sensory details, mm-hmm. uh, whether it's the music that's playing or what they're tasting or what they're wearing. Um, and like one of the details that I had discovered in my research was that as these young flapper women are wearing these new, you know, new dresses that are up to their shins or up to their knees and they're rolling down their stockings and uh, sometimes below their knees, they're, they're putting rouge on their kneecaps to make them look rosy. And I thought, okay, that's the kind of detail I love to find and insert somewhere in the book, sort of like those Baby Ruth candy bars, which were um, in the candy bar drop. Um, something I haven't seen anywhere else, and, uh, and yet it makes that scene come to life, I think. And, and also, I hadn't known that while these young, wild women were smoking cigarettes, it wasn't just for men anymore in their minds, um, they had perfumes marketed to them that were specially designed. They call them specially designed perfumes for women who smoke and things like that. And that's another sensory detail in that first prologue where that's evoking the sense of smell, which we
2: know is really um, resonant.
1: Right. It really set it up.
2: Thank you. That's, yeah, no. And all those little details just really bring the story to life. So um, we are talking obviously here about this connection to history, but I think it's clear in reading this book and, and not to put words in your mouth here, but I, I feel that, um, that you believe that it's very important to know where we came from warts and all to sort of know where we're going or, you know, to me, it felt like that through the book. So can you tell us about, you know, why you think that's an important message and, and and what do you hope that younger women will take away from Violet and Melanie's stories? Well,
0: you know. I have
2: uh, this this close connection with generations
0: because when I was born I was the fifth living generation in the family. And, wow. and yeah, and then years later so cool. when I had grandchildren they became the fifth living generation. We ha- we had it twice and that's really wow. rare.
2: Yeah. And
0: so I can't help but think about generations before me or generations coming after me, and um, and so with Violet being Melanie's great, 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 three greats aunt, in some ways that felt so natural to me, and I like the idea of Violet through her journal and her story that we read in real time. You know, we 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 read Violet's story as it's happening, but it's it's it comes through the journal to Melanie. Um, I like her being able to, to teach us something. Um, as for how it also relates to me is I think that you're going to have challenges in life. You're going to have setbacks. You're going to have to pick yourself up from something. I know I did. I, my first book didn't get published and, um, you know, I just kept trying and, uh, but it's hard to receive rejection and, and, and wonder, should I be doing something else? But I, and even when I came close to quitting, I don't know. Sometimes I thought I am a total glutton for punishment, but (laughs) I'm going to just keep trying. And I like to think that That uh Melanie in the modern day, uh, she's going to do everything she can. She's up for a promotion. There's this rival in her department that wants the same promotion. And um and she's getting stabbed in the back a little bit there. But ultimately, she she's just gonna do the best she can. And I think that's what we all do or should do or can do, is just do the best we can and and then see how. It ends, you know, and, um, that's lessons I taught my boys when, when they were young. And I, I think that's, that's an
2: important kind of thing.
1: Yes. Does that answer yes. the
2: question? Yes. Oh yes, oh, yeah. absolutely. Okay. That was, yes. Good. Perfect. Yes. Thank you.
1: Uh, so you've already alluded to some of the, um, more fun parts of your research and things, but what other aha moments did you have researching the twenties? So I just feel like it's such a time of um, women wanting more and maybe not being as free to follow that as they might be now, but what kind of aha things did you come up with?
0: A big aha for me was understanding through everything I read that flappers didn't just appear on the scene when prohibition struck or something like that, or the jazz age hit, they evolved. If, if you're 20 years old in 1920, you've already seen as a girl, silent films where the starlets, the Hollywood starlets are single in the movies and they are adventurous and they are daring and they're, they're getting themselves in scrapes that they have to get out of and everything. And, and that added to this sense of adventure and and daring and freedom for, for flappers, And then they, they get a little older and then they see the world go to war and they see people leaving their community to go off and fight and then some of them not coming back. And then you couple that with the Spanish flu uh, pandemic. And, and so they see some, some hard things in their life. And then in 1920 also, you have women gaining the right to vote so that with the jazz age and everything it i think it it created this environment that made them want to live life while they could because they've seen that some people don't make it and that they're 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 experiencing new freedoms in the story violet's mother has told her violet's mother is um, a former teacher, and and she's told her when when we get the right to vote, you're going to get to have things that I never had, and and Violet learns that, and she also learns that she gets to want things that her mother never wanted to. Oh,
1: and so, so I mean,
0: they, they get in the twenties, and they're going to cut this hair off. They're not going to deal with all the pins up on top of their heads, and they're going to go into the men's domain into the barbershop and have it bought, which was even more shocking. And they're going to wear dresses that have bare arms. I mean, in public, <gasps> it was shocking, uh, you know, and they're going to drive cars. They're going to drive hot cars. This car that was in the book, it was a two seater convertible and red Scarlet red. The manufacturer called it, called it. And, um, I mean, you know, now you have two attractive young women in a red convertible going down the street; it's going to turn heads. But back then, I mean, it left people with their mouths,
2: you know, hanging
1: open. <laughs> Scandalous. <Yeah. laughs> yes. No,
2: I I think that time period is so interesting, and I got to do a little a little bit of that, um, you know, research a little bit of that time period, and just that switch. It was really the beginning of that switch from when women were not allowed to go out alone. To when all of a sudden women could go out without a chaperone now, like it was this huge. I mean, even just you know, the freedom of that of being able to not have to have a chaperone with you where you went is just like you're absolutely right. It, it did change. I mean, the word
0: dating came to be yeah. where they would go out in a car on a date, and um, you're absolutely right that the automobile did change that facet of culture,
2: yeah, really interesting. Well. Tori, you've had two successful careers now, a very successful career at a law firm, and now you are a best-selling author. So can you tell us about when you knew you wanted to write and how were you able to switch gears into this new lane, this new career? Well,
0: first of all, I fell in love with history when I was five years old. I remember my grandparents taking me to a museum and I saw a Ford model T there. And, and I look back at that as that's what spurred that love of history for me. Um, that came before this need to write for me, but I was 27 when I first recognized, you know, I'd like to write a book one day I'd written. I had studied journalism and, um, and English and, and stuff, uh, in high school and college. And yet I thought, okay, I want to write a book. Well, I uh, had the practical career, you know, the um, working in, in the corporate life and um, raising my kids with my husband. And it really wasn't until I was like 42, I guess. Was I, was I 42 when we empty nested? 42, 43, something like that. And, and all of a sudden our kids are off of college. I'm like, okay, I got to do it now or never. And, and I, the way I was able to do it while I was still working full time was they were grown in, you know, off at least most of the year. And by then I had considerable vacation time at work and I would take my vacations. If we weren't going somewhere to research, I was writing. If I had uh, a whole week, I would, Literally go from a Saturday all the way to the next week through a Sunday, which gave me nine days. I know this by heart. It gives me nine days. And I would work 12 to 14 hours a day writing Um, because I'm an outliner. I had my outline and I would be prepared before this happened. I wouldn't just like be coming into this kind of vacation, not knowing what my goals were. But I would write in the evenings, write in the weekends, my husband, bless his heart, um, was always, always, always very supportive and encouraging. And we have a joke around here that I don't know if you know the movie um, Roadhouse with Patrick Swayze, but yes, you know, he, he yeah. got he got used to watching that movie a lot on a Saturday night <laughs>
1: <laughs> <laughs>
0: while well, I'm up in my office. And um, I mean, he's just all about it we're going to go on book tour together starting tomorrow and he's going to be my chauffeur and he's just oh, thrilled to do it.
2: You're fine. That. that
1: will be fun.
2: My husband um, goes with me some and we have a good time. It's a good time. It's,
1: it's fun. You do. You, you always, I can watch everybody on social media, all the, yeah. all the tours that go on. <laughs> I just get to watch them all, but
2: I, I don't know, Ron, I think mean, um, you get to do quite a bit of touring yourself these days. <laughs> um,
1: yeah, a little bit. It's fun. It's, it so, much fun. it's yeah. so much fun. So much fun. So, Tori, what can we look forward to from you next?
0: I'm in the research phase as we speak. I've written a a bit of a synopsis and I'm starting to outline, but that's as far as I've gotten. So it's a little early to talk about. Uh, I'll say this. I love novels that center around art. And, and Mm. when I get into this and start writing and, and I'll get into these zones and I retired in June, by the way, so I'm going to be able to do a lot more writing during the day. And, um, after the holidays, I figure is when I'm going to go into, um, this lockdown, you know, in my office and, and start hitting it heavy. Um, and that will be a telling factor, but I also like to integrate into my work. It wasn't planned, but so far it just has happened that way. And it could happen again. Integrate a setting that isn't as common. Like with Detroit, I've never mm-hmm. seen anything on Prohibition set there. Uh, you see a lot in New York and so forth. And um, In my first novel, it was all set in Cincinnati, which, again, you don't see a lot of, but, but occasionally. And, and I have an idea of at least part of a setting that will be new to readers and, and parts that won't be.
2: But there might just be art involved.
1: Hmm. I <laughs> love that. But don't hold uh, me to it. No, no, no. <laughs> no, we won't hold you to
2: it, but we like getting a little sneak peek, so thank you. <laughs> um well, Tori, you are such a fantastic storyteller, and we're so grateful mm-hmm. that you came here today. And we know that our listeners are gonna want to go and follow you and find out more about you. So where can we find you online?
0: ToriWitaker
2: dot com.
0: And you'll find all my social media links there and and all the places you can order the book and um a little bit about me fun facts and stuff like that
1: oh it's fun it's fun to follow you on social media all the Thank pictures you. and things i
0: so enjoyed talking <laughs> with you too oh
1: that's so fun and i lot of um, you
0: you had me on really oh, oh thanks please. for coming i'm so
1: happy that you agreed to come on mm-hmm. one last question have you actually seen the jordan playboy
0: not in person oh uh. I haven't seen one in real life, but I was able to obtain photo rights from the foremost historian in the country who has restored one himself and actually his car is on the cover of my book. and. Um, I tried to go see it with the person who had bought it from him a few years ago because the, the original owner who restored it is now 85 and, and he sold it. But but the other man just wasn't, he's getting ready to start a museum actually is what he's trying to do in Pennsylvania in um, coming years. So he's been collecting them. He's got 25 or 30 of them and I want wow. it so badly to go, but I, I couldn't make it happen. Now, that said, I did get inside a number of old cars from that period so that I could like Fords and I I could feel how the seat was not near as wide as a seat in a car now and and how the the hood or the little roof of it came down almost to my head and and how how it felt with the legs and everything. It had a similar size to it and and so I, I got to feel getting in the car and sitting behind the steering wheel which helped me for the book, but it wasn't the Jordan. Someday.
1: Someday. Someday.
2: I want to go drive one now.
1: I know. (laughs) Well, again, thank you, Tori. And thank you to all of our listeners. We're so grateful that you chose our podcast and we hope you'll share it with a friend. Be sure to join us next week for a brand new episode.